Hey now, it's Mike Gilbert, host of the Mike and JD Show, right here on the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network. Join JD by God Oliva and myself every Thursday night live on the Voices of Wrestling YouTube channel at 11.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time as we stay up all night discussing all the hottest stories in professional wrestling. You can also check us out right here on the Voices of Wrestling podcasting feed or you can subscribe to the Mike and JD Show feed. Now, enjoy the show. Hello and welcome everyone to the Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast. I am Jesse Collings um, and I want to welcome everyone for the first time I'm recording this and this podcast is now on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. And I know I put that out on social media this week. Um, and so what does that mean for, for you, the listener? I know that this podcast has primarily existed on YouTube up until this point. But the good news is that through the VOW network, you can now subscribe to us on pretty much any audio streaming platform that you get. If you use Spotify, if you use Apple Music or iTunes, if you use Amazon Podcasts, pretty much any of your, whatever your podcast app of choice is. I tend to be a Spotify guy myself, um, but I know a lot of people use a lot of different services. And now you can get this podcast anywhere. And I know that's something that people have been asking for. um, And I really want to thank everyone who's been supporting this podcast since it started. I want to thank Joe and Rich over at VOW um, for for believing in the project and and, and wanting to work with me. I I know it's probably not a super big surprise given how much work I've done with VOW and how I've had both Joe and Rich on this podcast in the past, but um, it's a really big deal. And I can't do it without all of the listener support. And this was something that I just kind of started on a whim. And now we're more than 50 episodes in and we've gotten the kind of grassroots organic growth that has really, you know, brought this to to the forefront and allowed, you know, the demand to be there so we can get picked up by someone bigger like the VOW Podcast Network. And so I'm really grateful for everyone. And the shows are still going to be on YouTube. Um, you know, there's still some, there's going to be occasionally episodes with the video elements, especially with like PowerPoints and things like that. And those will be kind of YouTube almost exclusive because everything the VOW podcast network does is audio based. Um, but you don't have to go and watch the YouTube videos. Now you can get them wherever you want. Um, and so I'm really thankful for that and all the support. Um, and so for today's episode, um, today I want to welcome a very special guest to the program. This is someone that I've been interested in speaking with, I guess, in, in person, or or maybe this isn't in person. I haven't quite figured out like a Zoom count is in person or, or not, but this is someone I've been interested in speaking with for quite some time, and that's Mara Johnston. Uh, Mara is currently a professor teaching the courses of journalism and new media and writing about popular music at Boston College. Uh, she's a graduate of the prestigious Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism and has spent decades writing about music and pop culture for different outlets. She is a founding editor for the music website Idolter, probably mispronounced that, uh, and spent time as the music editor for the alternative news weekly magazine, The Village Voice uh, in New York City. Mara spent three years teaching at New York University University's Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music before she came to Boston. Mara is a contributor for the Boston Globe, and her bylines can be found in other prestigious publications, including the New York Times, Rolling Stone, Pitchfork, and The Guardian. 
Mara is also a radio DJ for WZBC right here in Boston, and she has also appeared on WNYC in New York, WBUR in Boston, CBC Radio in Canada, and NPR. Mara is currently working on a biography on the pop musician Madonna, and Mara can be seen furiously taking notes during the middle of SZA concerts, and she is the nation's foremost critic on the prose of Unfrozen Caveman. Welcome to the show, Mara Johnston. Mara, are you there? She's gone. She well, hated my she hated, no, I'm here. she hated my intro. No, so. I loved your intro. No, it was great. No. Oh my gosh, that video. Um, that was such a funny thing. I got caught while covering the SZA show at the TD Garden on Tuesday when I was furiously taking notes by hand because I prefer taking notes by hand when I review concerts. And uh, that was a surprise TikTok moment that I experienced this yeah week. for her this is an inside kind of an inside joke but more as she said was at a SZA concert in Boston on Tuesday and SZA like wrapped up a perform uh, one of her songs and someone filmed her Mara like had this little notebook out she was scribbling notes and they said they said what they said they said like she's taking notes on you and yeah blew up on TikTok <laughs> um I appreciate <laughs> the old school notebook uh writing uh I, that's how i like to take notes too you wouldn't have stood out if you were just typing something on your phone right yeah absolutely i mean and it's funny because with that i like taking notes for on paper for a couple of reasons number one i like having the mementos i use these small notebooks from the japanese stationer muji and so i have just like a trunk full of them from many years and then i also feel like the the sense memory of writing, even though a lot of times because it's dark, what I write is the scribble, but I do remember sort of what was happening when I was writing certain things. So it helps me piece together the show after the fact. It's a really interesting trick that the mind plays on you. I think that's definitely true. Like the sensory kind of idea of when you're writing something down and even like you can put little points of emphasis like mm -hmm. underlines and stuff like that and, and even yeah. exclamation points that really help drive home like key points like if I'm doing an interview and I'm taking notes and it's like all right this is definitely something I want to remember to focus on quick underline I don't know it's and also I can I can write better I, I can type faster than I can write but I can write shorthand way faster than I can type yeah I can't Absolutely. type shorthand. I can't type shorthand at all. It would make no sense. But for me, like the abbreviations and stuff I use when I'm taking notes by hand, I can usually figure those out. Um, recently switched to taking more notes by pencil because my writing oh, is much clean. My my writing is much clearer to read in pencil and pen. It's a oh. scrawl. I'm looking at it right now. And like, I, I, I talked to someone two hours ago and I'm trying to remember what they said based on my my pen my penmanship but yeah yeah pencils that's interesting I might try a pencil next time I usually use these micro tip pens but because I, I like the really fine point but um mm -hmm. a pencil sounds like a good plan so well pencils maybe... you got to deal with breaking the pencil or right. like the pencil not being as sharp so it's so it's kind of dull as opposed mm -hmm. to pen so and a, a trip this is a real veteran journalism trick <laughs> uh, uh, pencils you can or you cannot use a pen in colder weather your pen will dry up in colder weather. So you should always have a pencil on if you ever are outside having to report on something when it's cold outside. Like if it's if it's below freezing temperature, use a you have to use a pencil. You can't use a pen for the most part. 
Um, That's good to know, given the unpredictability of the weather lately and uh, the fact that a lot of shows starting in May are outside. So I'm going to take that tip to heart. Yeah, when we all have nuclear winter, you'll be glad to know that <laughs> that you had a pencil. My memoirs but will be written in pencil. <laughs> that was a uh, yeah. I was I was very when I was very young. I was on an assignment, and a photographer was there. My pen wasn't working. My photographer the my photographer had a pencil, and she's like, "You're going to need this pencil. You can only use pencils in the cold." That's that's something that you you got to incorporate that in your classes, Mara, because that's something they do not teach in journalism yeah, school. I definitely do. Well, I bring my I bring I brought my notebook to class on Wednesday because that was my music writing class. And funny enough, it was the live music coverage class. Mm -hmm. So I do show them just how the scrawls turn into <laughs> a 400 word summary of what happened at the show. Mm -hmm. And so the reason I really wanted to have you on the show here is um, for starters, I was really, I'm really intrigued in like how you, someone who is you know, an accomplished, you know, critic in, 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 in what I like to call the real world, it's not the fake world of professional wrestling, uh, but in the real world of, of media and pop culture um, and kind of talk about your background at first and how you became such a big wrestling fan. Um, and I'll, I'll start by, I, the, my first introduction to you, to your work was, I was reading the Boston Globe and it was, I think the day of AEW Dynamite's debut in Boston. Um, and I was reading the sports page as I normally do uh, in the morning. And on the back page is where like they sometimes stuff, stuff the entertainment stuff. And there was an article on AEW Dynamite and it was written by, I saw your byline and I was like, oh my God, someone's writing about AEW in the Boston Globe. That's so cool. Um, and then I think I, I looked you up because I was like, who is this? Because I'm always interested when people, when people get mainstream, when people writing about wrestling get mainstream media headlines. I'm like really interested in knowing like, oh, how much do they know about wrestling and what what is their fandom? And like, because I'm usually pretty critical of that kind of stuff. Right. And so I so I found I was like, oh yeah. So and I had seen you write a little bit here and there about um about wrestling. And I was uh it wasn't until I joined the the Voices of Wrestling Discord. And then you're <laughs> you're in there, but you're in there just as your first name, Mara, which could be anybody. And then at one point you let you said something about writing something somewhere or, or or some published article you said and i just said like are you the globe mora and right. you said yes i am and i said small world i didn't think i'd find you here um <laughs> and so i'm just curious to know like how did you kind of get into pro wrestling can you kind of tell take us through like your your interest in pro wrestling and your journey sure it it started i guess in you know in the 80s i'm you know in my late 40s and so you know obviously there was the whole Cindy Lauper, Captain Lou Albano crossover and, and um, MTV would, you know, promote wrestling and everything. And so I kind of got into it there when it was really in the zeitgeist. But then my sister, my younger sister and her friends from like the block that I lived on wanted to just get WrestleMania on pay-per-view. And, you know, this was back in the day of 36 channels and everything. This was the early nineties. And I watched it then and obviously, you know, it was my younger sister and I was like the cool teenager. So I was like, oh, whatever. But there was something about it that I really enjoyed. And then it kind of, my, my interest kind of went dormant for about 10 years. And I was living in Philadelphia um, where I lived in the early 2000s. And a friend of mine from college, just for, for some reason, we, we would just hang out and watch Raw and SmackDown. Um, he was living in New Jersey at the time, and he was also writing for a website that 
had recaps of these wrestling shows and it would like recap the wrestling shows um with details about what was happening you know it was very like it was very like early 2000s blogging style Mm -hmm. and you know then I moved to New York and I and sort of my my interest sort of went dormant again just because I was so consumed with being in New York and also at the time I was working for Major League Baseball's website and that was kind of taking up a lot of my brain space um and then I kind of didn't really get interested in it again until I moved to Boston in 2013. And a friend of mine who I knew from some mutual friends and I had worked with his brother, um, he invited me over to watch wrestling. And, you know, at the time I was still new in the city and I needed friends. And so, and this person was, is awesome. So I went over and I just kind of got into it then. And we would watch like, pay-per-views together and sometimes we'd watch raw and everything and we went to raw there was also in boston do you remember blow at all uh, it's like the boston blow? boston like league of, no with two w's um the i think it was i think it's for the boston league of women's wrestling but there was like a small women's independent mm-hmm. Yeah, that, there that my was friend, um, that another friend of mine was involved in. Yeah, I mean Sheldon Goldberg used to run uh, New England Championship Wrestling, yeah. which was the indie probably around that time, and they had a women's a separate women's the kind of it was a kind of basically a separate women's brand mm-hmm. for it. That might be what that might be what I'm recalling. It might be something different, but sounds okay. sounds right. Yeah, they would do shows at like I think they did a show at Great Scott R.I.P. Great Scott is for those of you not in Boston, it was a really great. No, no pun intended, but a really excellent rock club and also down the block from my apartment. So that made it even better. Um, and I think they did a show at once, also RIP in Somerville. Um, and so, you know, and then my my friend and I, we started a Facebook group um, just for like, you know, people we knew to talk about wrestling. And it turns out that there are a lot of music journalists into wrestling. It's kind of like this not so secret society. So the the group is a lot of music journalists and then people who I've known throughout the years um, from my travels around the internet and in college and stuff. And then when AEW announced that it was going to exist, I watched the press conference and I was super intrigued. And, you know, there was that whole kind of spring with everything kind of gearing up to double or nothing. And I had a friend, a friend of mine came over and we watched it and I was just so into it. I I don't know, like there was just something about it that really clicked with me and I started getting super interested in it. And I started like investigating around, um, I actually like, you know, for a corporate client of mine, I tried to write about AEW because they were a live events focused corporate client. And um, I went to the second taping, the one in September of no October sorry October of 2019 because that was at Aganis Arena as well yeah and I just really I don't know there I just really liked it I liked that it was doing something it felt different it like it didn't feel like there was you know a joke that I had to sort of not pay attention to in order to fully enjoy it and ever since then I've just sort of gotten deeper and deeper I mean you know it's interesting to compare wrestling to music in a lot of ways and obviously there is overlap in fandom like definitely over the past couple of years you know there have been 
artists and promoters and stuff who like have revealed their interest in wrestling. And, and so that's been fun. Um, but you know, it's interesting to just think of it as like another live event business too, and to see how it compares to um, music shows. But also, you know, one thing I really liked about um, the first AW show that I went to was that it didn't feel like a TV taping. You know what I mean? Like from a pacing standpoint? Yeah, from a pacing standpoint. Like when you, like I had been to a raw taping, I think a year prior and um, it just, there was, you know, you could tell when the commercials were airing because they would air commercials on the, on the screens and everything. And, and it, it just felt very much for the people at home, which obviously like from a business standpoint, that makes sense. But there was something about the pacing of the AEW show and just the way that it, there was so much action. It was also the show that, you know, the dark match after um, the dynamite taping was that Joey Janela, Kenny Omega, uh street fight no holds yeah. barred i forget this exactly this was uh yeah was. this was before like aw dark became like this like youtube show with like prelim matches and this was like when they were like aw dark is going to be like this major yeah match. and they had kenny omega versus joey janela in a lights out match and it was yeah. like a bonkers insane it was match. bonkers oh my goodness yeah it, it was, was it this was... yeah it was really like it's kind of crazy to think about that was like a, that was on aw dark like compared yeah. to what's on there now and then know. you know their taping is so different now now they didn't have rampage to tape after the show right. and that's the only time i've ever seen oh well i've seen him since wrestle uh but that was the first time i ever saw kenny omega live and i, yeah, I was blown too. i was blown away by like the match and everything like it was really like if you haven't seen it um and i haven't seen it uh i i, I haven't seen it since it was on AEW dark because i went out of my way to see it after i saw it live um but that's a that's a, it really is an incredible match. Um, yeah, and it was, it really that's is. probably like the most like I remember that show and it was like I think they did like Jericho did a big like promo in the ring like the JS promo and then uh, Inner Circle. Yeah, yeah, the Inner Circle. Yeah, it was the Inner Circle promo, kind of like introducing the Inner Circle to everyone. Mm-hmm. There was I think that was the Young Bucks uh, losing to Private Party. That um, was that was the that oh. was the opening match. Yeah, and then it was also Darby Allen rode his skateboard down the ramp. Yeah. Uh, and attack with Jericho and like so um so that was kind of like your, your like once you go see AEW live and you see the energy it kind of turns things up I think if you have a positive Absolutely. live experience I talked a lot about this when they announced they're doing house shows mm-hmm. and one of my arguments was that like if you go to something if you're kind of an on the fence fan or casual fan or maybe someone who just is sampling the product here and there and this can kind of go for for more than just wrestling but if you go to something live and you have a good time you're going to end up being a bigger fan it's the same thing like if you're a absolutely if you're a you know uh yeah I'm, maybe I'm a little bit of a basketball fan and then you go to an NBA game and the game is awesome and you have such a good time chances are you're going to come out of that as a bigger mm-hmm. NBA fan if you go to a concert and you like maybe the opening act is someone you know like one song by but you've never heard really heard anything else and you go and they kill it then you're going to be a bigger fan and I think the same way is for wrestling and live events and bringing that product directly to people is a way for 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 people to increase their fandom and, and for companies to increase their fan base absolutely I absolutely I mean you know I covering concerts as we mentioned earlier is something that I do and so it's really crucial to you know the the experience and i mean th- you can also get 
bring people to the live shows and then they'll be interested in it beyond that, you know? So it's really, it's, it's, it's definitely a phenomenon that I, I feel like there are, you know, and I don't know if it's because I'm just like, I see it, you know, it's like the boss baby problem where this reminds me of wrestling because that's what I've been watching a lot lately, but you know, there is definitely a parallel there. Yeah. Well, I think everything is pro wrestling. It happens to me. <laughs> it happens to me in my real life all the time. It happens to yeah. me where I want to use wrestling terms. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, like, you know, like certain wrestling lingo and I'm trying to use it in real life. And I, and then I have to run through my head. if like, you know, is this a word people say in real life or is this right, do right. people say bury in real life? Or is that something only in wrestling <laughs> conversations? Like, Oh, I'm going to bury this thing. Like, will people understand what I'm talking about? I have to have that conversation in my head probably multiple times per day. Um, yeah. I want to ask you like a, like a much more general question in the sense of, and this is something sure. that like, I feel like a lot of people don't really think about that much, but is also kind of paramount to our broader understanding of, of, you know, what pro wrestling is and, and how can it become more popular? And that is like, just generally like, why do you like pro wrestling? Why do you spend time consuming pro wrestling when you could be doing something else with your time? What's what really makes pro wrestling special to you? I just, I just love the stories. It's funny. You know, one funny thing is that um, when I started, you know, like really sort of getting into AEW and like going to pay-per-views out of state and stuff, mm -hmm. my mom was like, you know, my grandmother used my, her grandmother. So my great grandmother, who I never met loved wrestling when she was growing up, she was, she would like, watch. she would like, I, I guess, I don't know how she would consume it. Listen, listen to it on the radio or watch it on TV, but she loved it growing up. So I wonder if it's some like inherited thing, you know? But I just really love the kind of drama and the and the and the um, the talent that's so that's so multifaceted that's on display because it is like really there's a lot going on and I mean it's funny because um, for the piece that you mentioned the Boston Globe piece which I should know you know I I was very lucky in that I got to um, write that because my editor at the globe Hans Schultz he okayed it as an art story and when I was talking to Brian Danielson he was like I you know I was like what would you say to a wrestler what would you say to a non-wrestling fan that's the appeal of wrestling and he would go he said I would call it combat theater and like in my head I was like thank you for justifying this going in the art <laughs> section you know but um but I think that that's it it's just it's this combination of all of these different performative skills and it can really like watching somebody just walk out like Kanosuke Takeshita is a really good example of this like every time he walks out he's so skilled at like getting the crowd just increasingly on his side even people who don't know who he is and it's just really it's it's really just this exciting showcase of talent and you know, also unexpected things. And the the characters, you know, that that are working out these matches as well, they're pretty varied and you, you definitely, you know, it's fun to root for and against people. It also just, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny because I think that part of it was that it was an escape from music for me because, I mean, you know, obviously I love music and, you know, I listen to it all the time and I'm super into it, but sometimes you can get a little burned out on going full bore into something that you love and so this was sort of a 
an adjacent escape if that's if that makes sense well it's a hobby from what your professional career is right like for most people and I think um you know for me when I always like describe like why do I like pro wrestling what is the appeal of pro wrestling to me it's a question I've asked myself like a lot like seriously because I'm like why do I love this so much Mm -hmm. um and to me the best way for myself to describe it is that it is these it is drama and it is all of these different characters and personalities and they're all existing in this like fall competition where they're trying to to win this game they're trying to win this competition Mm -hmm. of of physical skill and how these characters interact within that world is very a unique form of entertainment because and this is like I thought about this a lot during like like when I when I was writing a lot about like Bray Wyatt and why like I just cannot stand mm-hmm. his performance. Right. And a lot of it is because of people are like, oh, it's like a horror movie. It's like this. It's not supposed to be like pro wrestling. It's supposed to be this. And it's like, if I wanted to watch a horror movie, I would watch a horror movie. If I wanted to see great acting or a great storyline, like if I want to see great acting, I would watch a really good movie or a TV series. If I wanted to follow a great storyline i would read a book like but the only thing that can provide what makes pro wrestling unique is that it provides acting and storytelling and athleticism and charisma and it's all in this very hard to to unravel universe of these are men and women trying to win a championship belt and trying to you know beat each other in, in tests of skill and endurance. Right. Uh, and that's, it's such a unique performing art in that sense. And that's why I ultimately find it so intriguing. It's like, I, I like watching movies. I like watching real sports, but there's something about the pro wrestling that you cannot, I mean, you can't find it anywhere else. There's no, nothing yeah. really similar to it. When I try to describe it to other people, I try to say it's kind of like, like the interest is almost similar to like, the reason people like ballet because ballet ballet is part physical skill Mm -hmm. but also part physical storytelling so you kind of have to be an athlete and you have to be an actor and you're doing this athletic performance but there's also this story that's going on within your movements and pro wrestling is very similar and ballet of course is seen as classy and highbrow and wrestling is considered trashy and lowbrow and for a lot of good reasons but the appeal is almost similar and that's why i find it so fascinating as of a subject to continue to to, to watch and to explore and to discuss i think that's a great point and i actually have made the ballet analogy to people as well um and the dance you know dance in general because i do think that you you're right in that there's that expressiveness but that expressiveness is also being achieved in tandem with this incredible physical skill yeah and i think that's that's something that's like unique to pro wrestling and like you said like talking about like Takeshita, right like there's this whole like he he can walk out into a building he doesn't speak english really uh people maybe are completely unfamiliar with him when he walks out and there's some Mm -hmm. but there's something about his physical movement and his physical presentation yeah, people can be like, you know what? I like this guy. Yeah, totally. totally. What a what a science that is, right? Yeah. What, what a what's something to how how do you unpack that? Like, if you were to ask, like, you know, 
a wrestling fan like how do you how does a wrestling fan become like po a popular baby face or popular good guy and they would say like oh they have this character and they tell this story and they cut this promo and it's like okay well this guy's doing none of that yet mm -hmm. he's somehow still able to get thousands of strangers to be like i like that guy right um it's i mean it's charisma right it's just some people have it you know some people just have that x factor about them that's how you know that's the the defining principle of everything from like american idol to you know politics that's what i mean and when i, I think know. about politics like like the like politics or i was gonna say this i was gonna say the second stage of boston calling but that too yeah <laughs> no like well i think like 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 there are certain people with political careers that take off because they just have like an inherent likability to them and they can be yeah, very smart absolutely. they can have policy ideas that you agree with but there is there's something about having that ease and, and ability to project yourself to other people and to connect with their sensibilities that some people are just going to inherently have the same way some people are going to be inherently quieter and inherently boisterous or inherently fast or inherently slow. It's almost like a natural trait that you I don't know if you can really teach. I don't I, I mean, I think the only thing that you can teach is confidence. And that will fuel that kind of charismatic outpouring. Mm -hmm. well, and you see this in music too, in the sense of like, yeah, there, oh, for like, sure. music is not a pure talent industry. Yeah. It certainly helps to be very talented, but there's a lot that goes into just having a stage presence, having the, mm -hmm. having a personality pre presence. Honestly, that probably sells more like having a, a certain type of personality, a certain type of brand, a certain type of image is probably more beneficial to you than having like raw talent. I think it's a combination of the two, but I do think that having a personality is, I mean, like, obviously, you know, there are many extremely, extremely talented players out there who are still, you know, who haven't, who aren't headlining arenas or whatever, but I think that there is a, it's it's kind of a, you know, calculus that's individualized because there are some people who are just super talented, but then there are, you know, obviously the people who are, you just can't take your eyes off them and they're extremely magnetic for whatever reason. Right. And in wrestling kind of, it's again, is, is really, it's show business. It's a performing art. Yeah. And there's something that's like appealing about watching people do that in, in like the whole idea of seeing somebody and then seeing if like other people get behind this person if the company mm -hmm. gets behind this person and they're like given a push and yep. all of that is so intriguing it's I, I would say like as a wrestling fan myself I was talking about this with with Brandon Thurston uh earlier this week but I really am not like someone who like is rooting for certain people to win matches like when I'm watching mm -hmm. wrestling like I don't really care about like the results that much but i'm very what i find myself caring more and more about is like what decisions are going to be made to to how is this going to help elevate somebody how is this going to help progress somebody's story i'm not really like i'm a fan of this wrestler so i want them to win this fake title I, i'm more very much more intrigued in like what the results of the matches mean for like the broader mechanism of generating stars and helping people remain stars and, and that kind of thing it's it's really how i like the most intrigue i get from 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 that is is like like we're taping this two days before aw revolution like i don't really care who wins the mjf brian danielson match 
But what mm-hmm. I care about is kind of like, what will this match tell us about like MJF as a world champion and MJF as a star? And like, if yeah. he beats Brian Danielson, how will he do it? And what will that mean for him as like this potential giant star that AEW is trying to promote? Um, and mm-hmm. will that be successful or will that be less successful? Um, and that's the real intrigue for me, at least as a fan. And again, that's something that you can't really say about like real sports. Like I kind of care who wins. Like I want my team that I support to win the game. Uh, wrestling, it's it's more of like examining like the mechanisms of this industry and finding my own personal interest within covering it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's well, I feel like that that's kind of like what happens, you know, in the kind of rush to the playoffs, right? Where it's like, what is this? trade mean for this team you know it's like right the nba is big on ken rosenthal stuff you know yeah yeah Yeah, and like the nba is very big like nba like just the nba media culture and nba fan culture is Mm -hmm. really big on like what big move is going to happen what player is going to be traded and and that kind of thing and it's entirely based on like speculation of how this will impact the the the, you know who's going to win the championship this year almost to the degree that it sometimes overshadows like who actually wins the championship and like the game that's actually going on um and then so uh let's uh let's shift gears a little bit because i want to talk to you about something else which was um kind of like how wrestling fits in pop culture in general Mm -hmm. and i thought like you brought up like kind of you know you're you writing a story about AEW for the boston globe and it's going to be an art story and it's like, what is right. pro wrestling? Is it art? Is it sports? Is it some, it's, is it sports entertainment? A fake term that Vince McMahon <laughs> invented? Like, what, like, how do you, how does pro wrestling fit within our, our pop, a broader pop culture? And I think there's a number of different interesting ways to discuss this. I think I'll start with this, that in the last it's probably a trend that that's gone on much further than this, but I'll say in the last 15 years or so, mm-hmm. like fandom that maybe would have been designated as either lowbrow or like nerdy has become mainstream, right? Yeah. Obviously, I think comic books are the easiest like way to go with this, where like comic books, which were like this nerd thing, have now become this big cultural thing. And now basically every website in in that covers pop culture in any way shape or form is going to have consistent coverage of something related to comic books whether that's movies or or the comic books themselves um and so like and i think that's led to kind of an increase in mainstream media coverage of pro wrestling and some outlets taking pro wrestling coverage like pretty seriously um and like i thought it was interesting you mentioned that like in uh in like in like a music music journalist circles, you notice that like a lot of pro wrestling fans, but yeah. not everyone comes out and talks about why they're a pro wrestling fan. I think that's true. Uh-huh. There's a lot of people that are kind of like secret wrestling fans that you kind of have to unlock yourself. They're not necessarily coming out and talking about their fandom. Uh, mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's there's still like this 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 stigma around saying you're a pro wrestling fan. Or it's just something that people like to do in their private time and don't want anyone to know about. <laughs> um, but I find that kind of kind of be interesting that we've come a long way and kind of I think like not like shaming people for their interests in a public way. Yeah. But also pro wrestling still kind of being associated with this kind of like mysterious thing. Like, oh yeah, I watch pro wrestling sometimes. 
Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because obviously like people who follow me on Instagram or on Twitter know that I'm, you know, watching wrestling a lot or traveling to wrestling shows and, um, you know, they'll come out. Some of them will be like, oh yeah, I watched it too. Or, you know, I mean, there is still also the mainstream idea that WWE, like, you know, when I talked about, I, I went a couple of years ago to um, brunch with a friend of mine who had been in town and I was like, oh, you know, I, I'm going to a wrestling show this week. I forget what show it was, but um, he was like, oh, WWE, you know, and, and he's like a really pop culture savvy guy. And I was like, no, and I had to explain it. And so I think that there still is that kind of, you know, match between the two um, in a lot of culture. I think AW being on TBS and being kind of, you know, increasingly high profile through various efforts is breaking that. I think also, you know, here in New England, we have, you know, Beyond and other uh, indie federations that are doing their own thing. And, you know, having shows at venues like Arts in the Armory in Somerville, which is, you know, where tonight that band pile is playing pile was this really great band that sort of ruled the basement show scene in alston and they've since you know sort of scattered around new england but um you know they're like this really well-respected indie rock band and so i think that i think it's just that you know people you know i think you were right about the not shaming people for things but i also think that it's just like it's it's something fun and it's something that you can bring friends to and certainly like I've brought friends to wrestling shows whether it's AEW or beyond and they didn't know what to expect and you know I don't think they were just being nice when they said that they liked it because I think that I would probably pick up on that but um yeah I don't I it's a complicated question just because you know I think that there's a lot of a lot less stigma about just liking things that maybe weren't cool a couple of years ago but I don't know it's it's complicated because you know I'm somebody you know I'm somebody who in music criticism is known for kind of supporting the ideal that was known as poptimism you know which was a which was something that was sort of forged in the late 90s and early 2000s and it was literally just like in its origin phase it was literally just don't discount pop music just because it's pop music because it was coming out you know we were coming out of a time when a lot of music critics were just like oh well this is crap on the radio and it's kind of terrible for a historic perspective because there's not a lot of good writing on a lot of things that were important phenomena you know or interesting phenomena so this is all a roundabout way of saying that I think that people are willing to give things a shot even if they have you know, if, if the stigma isn't because, you know, they're like racist or homophobic or transphobic or something. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it definitely makes sense. It's really interesting to me to think about like how our pop culture has evolved in the sense of like, we like people's in, now, especially in the world of podcasting, mm -hmm. which is, I think a great example, like podcasting in YouTube vlogs and websites to a lesser degree, I think, um, but 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 really the podcasting and like YouTube and, and things like that, and you could throw in like popular Twitter or Instagram accounts or things like that, but like which which really creates a creator content in the sense that people who are fans of something 
can create a channel or a podcast dedicated to something and immediately see people who are in other parts of the world have an interest in that. And you see so much and just in general, anything that would be considered like a niche hobby or any hobby that people like kind of like celebrated by themselves for the most part, Mm -hmm. there is now an outlet that exists, many outlets that exist for people to discuss their thing for and sure. it doesn't matter yeah. how niche it really is and that slowly creeps into more mainstream coverage like i think like like dungeons and dragons which i don't mm-hmm. play because i'm not a nerd but uh but 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 but, but, all, but being serious i don't either no yeah. but being serious is like something like that would be like a, just a classic nerdy thing would be like dungeons and dragons is like now like you can go on youtube and watch a dungeons and dragons youtube channel that's probably got hundreds of thousands of subscribers and you can read articles and blogs and podcasts about D and all of this stuff and it's like here's something that would be considered like a niche nerdy interest and now there is this entire cohesive media environment around that one niche nerdy hobby like and now once that happens you'll see articles pop up and maybe some alternative mainstream news sources mm-hmm. um, that are going to cover it because, hey, look, we cover some nerdy stuff. Let's, let's let's get this thing. That's a weird niche. And let's throw that in there. And I think that helps legitimize like interest in a lot of ways that mm-hmm. that it, as opposed to just having these, you know, pre-internet, you have these these, you know, gatekeeping old media services that are right. pretty regimented and what they're going to cover and what they're not going to cover. And the internet over the last 20 plus years has really, I think, expanded that. And that's only continued to grow as, especially with younger people, more and more of their time is spent online consuming this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that's yeah, definitely I, happened with wrestling. I think so too. And I think with, you know, the, also the increased amount of, because one thing I'd like to point out is that I think that wrestling media is actually very instructive for just the way that media in general is going with these self-funded subscription funded services that are that you know are have like people at their fore whether it's the wrestling observer or, or voices of wrestling or anything you know where it's like you're giving your money to the individual creator and mm-hmm. i feel like um a lot of as space in a lot of publications gets in a lot of well-paying publications, I should say, gets smaller and smaller, you have more writers that are turning to this in, these independent outlets. And it really does remind me of when I would try to find wrestling news back in the early 2000s while I was at work and, you know, just constantly be getting like, subscribe to this, subscribe to this. And I didn't until 20 years later. But um, yeah, I think, you know, I think, I mean, I'm somebody who um, I first went online in 1990. <laughs> Because my dad had CompuServe and he would let me use it. It was billed by the hours, but he would let me use it a couple of hours a week. And that was, you know, my first taste of online discussion. And then I was active on this BBS based out of New York um, because in the 90s, when I was home for the summer, I wanted to be able to check my email so I could be in touch with friends of mine. And that also introduced me to this kind of like, you know, niche listening habits sort of thing or discussion discussion habits sort of thing and um I think that you're right in that like there is so much opportunity now for people to kind of really get into things I also think one thing that's interesting like speaking of you know we were talking about TikTok earlier um have you seen the TikToks that are like roll for sandwich 
No, I'm not a TikTok person. Okay. Uh, so I'm uh, the TikTok trends. I'm going to be very, uh, uh, very, uh, very, um, like a dinosaur on. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, you know, it's something that I have to keep up with it just because now it's being, it's so important for music now. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that I think is interesting is there is, there was this, there's this channel and it's called, it, it has a series called Roll for Sandwich and it uses the D&D die, but it uses them to like make a sandwich, you know? So if, you know, like every number is like, I rolled three, so I have to put cheddar on my sandwich, that kind of thing. Okay. And so I think that those sorts of like sidelong um, views into fandom are also something that is really interesting to me where it's like, okay, taking the dice from D and D or like you said earlier, terms from wrestling and applying them to these other things that will kind of be bridge content almost for people who might be interested in sandwiches more than D and D, but then they'll be like, well, what is this die? Cause they might not know. Kind of like, I was thinking of the, um, the mountain goats record from a couple of years ago, beat the champ their the, the wrestling themed record that they did. Okay. Um, do you know, like it's mountain goats are, it's John Darnielle and he's an incredible songwriter. He's also, um, on the new season of that show, poker face on Peacock. And he did, you know, he loves wrestling and he did like an album that was just all about wrestling ideas and stuff. And so that I think also kind of maybe opened the gates for, you know, people who are into indie rock to kind of be like, oh yeah, I like it too. Well, who's a bigger wrestling fan than Billy Corgan? Uh, He was selling NWA shirts at the show that I went to uh, last year. Were people buying them? Uh, I don't think so. I didn't see, you know, did people I, I wonder the why merchant. there was not a long line when I was did, walking? Did by people the wonder why he was selling merch for like a uh, 90s hip hop group? Or yeah, well, I, I just, you know, maybe they just figured he was really into like bringing the 90s back because it was, um, I'm sure Smashing Billy Pumpkins Corgan is very interested in that and Jane's addiction. So, yeah. you know, it was a very like it was, it was definitely in my college wheelhouse. There. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, it's interesting. And, um, I want to talk about like kind of like something else that was discussed. Uh, I discussed this earlier this week with someone else and we're talking about nostalgia. And like, like there's been a lot of discussion probably with WWE over the last 10 years, at least about like how, how reliant WWE is on nostalgia. And we saw that this week, right? Like Trish Stratus and Lita came back and they, they won the, or Trish Stratus helped Lita win the tag team titles with, with Becky Lynch. And yeah. And John Cena is going to be at TD garden on Monday. Right. Uh, are you going to go? No. Yeah. No, okay. I'm are you? Gonna... No, I haven't been a WWE show in years. No, me neither. It I haven't take a... since that, since like 2018. Yeah. yeah. It would take a lot to be honest. Like it would take a lot for me to like want to, especially a TV taping, like you were describing earlier, like the pacing of a TV taping is so brutal Yeah. Uh, for like a three yeah. hour raw. But anyway, uh, WWE bashing aside, but right. So there's this, <laughs> there's this nostalgia push in the sense that like, um, you have like these WWE's really focused in on this, um, you know, pushing older stars and relying on older stars. And, and that, that's been the case for like probably about a decade now, especially for major events like WrestleMania. And it's always been kind of presented as like this problem, right? Which is like WWE has no new stars. So they're continuing to rely on older stars. Um, and that's, I, there's a lot of validity to that. And I've certainly talked and, and written about that at length. 
but I was talking about this with someone else and I was kind of saying like, you know, this isn't a mutually exclusive problem with no, not at all with wrestling and with WWE. This is something that exists in kind of every form of entertainment that we have in this sense. And a part of that is, again, we, we just got done to kind of talking about the internet and how scattered things can be and how niches can evolve and people's interests can be, you know, in all, all over the place and less focused on one particular thing because of the resources that the average person has to, to consume all this media. Um, but this is something that exists in television and movies and music in that like, we're almost at a point where are we creating new content at the same rate as much as we are just relying on older content to influence us? And is that something that is a relatively new trend? Is that something that has always existed? Um, and kind of how does pro wrestling relate to that? And I mentioned this, like, we talk about like how like if you are like going on Peacock and you're saying like, oh, WWE on Peacock, I wonder what they have on there. And mm -hmm. yes, they have the modern stuff that's happening now, but they also focus a lot on Steve Austin and Hulk Hogan and The Rock and The Undertaker and these wrestlers from the past. And these are things that you can watch on Peacock, not just our current stars, but all this stuff from the past. And it's like, oh, yeah, because though WWE, they can't let go of their past. But if you go on anything else on Peacock or any other streaming service, especially these legacy media ones like Peacock and Paramount Plus and HBO Max, they have all sorts of stuff from shows and movies from the 2000s and 90s and 80s and 70s and all the way back. So our media in general is focused a lot on nostalgia, not just pro wrestling. Um, yeah. But, and it's something to keep an eye on, I think, for when it comes to when we talk about star power and things like that. Absolutely. I mean, you know, when Peacock launched, like one of its point, one of its selling points for the premium, the, the memberships that you paid for was that you could get access to the office and the, the expanded office episodes. Mm -hmm. And a obviously that was off a, the air for at right. least 10 years. And, you know, I also, you know, we'll talk to people in their twenties who were like, yeah, we watched a lot of friends. And I was like, why? <laughs> Right, I mean, like but I think a lot of it is that um, because the marketing environment is so much more chaotic now, it's 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 all over the place. You can have you can be big on TikTok and nothing everywhere else. You can be you can be huge on Twitter and nobody outside Twitter will care. Um, the marketing infrastructure is a lot more diffuse, and as a result, things that were even middling in the 2000s, the 1990s are have more of a sort of like widespread potency. Now, the thing is, there's a difference between widespread and deep, right? Because obviously, you know, you talk to some of these artists that are really popular or, you know, whether it's a music artist or an independent wrestler and they have devoted, devoted fans. So... I think these companies though, they want that kind of, you know, the old model of the old model of record companies was that like the superstars, the, the diamond selling artists, you know, which is 10 mm -hmm. million copies or more would subsidize the mid and lower tier artists, but there aren't that many diamond artists anymore. So it's kind of like, well, I guess we can go back to what worked 20 years ago because people will remember that. And um, I was reading this interesting interview with the head of Paramount and he was talking about lean back programming where it's like you just kind of you know passively consume it 
And I think in those sorts of situations, you're going to have things that comfort you. You're going to have things that kind of tickle your familiarity lobe in your brain. You're going to have things that you're like, oh, I remember who I was when I first saw Allie and AJ's video for a potential breakup song or something like that, you know? And um, I think that because of that, you know, what a strange example a to of... use. <laughs> I had well, it was popular on TikTok last year. Was it? And also, yeah. And also, um, Ali Machalko was great. I Zombie. I don't know if you watched I Zombie, but that show was. Awesome. I saw a lot of TV. Um, I saw a lot of TV spots for I Zombie. I saw a lot of TV spots for I Zombie when I was watching Arrow. Oh yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, I Zombie was great. I mean, you know, it was it's from the Veronica Mars brain trust mm -hmm. so obviously i trust it but anyway but but you know like that became popular on tiktok like i think it was last year it might have been 2021 i mean i will say also that you know the pandemic has really kind of just warped time for a lot of people you know so things that happened in 2018 might seem like they happened more recently than that you know yeah like, um like the like even AEW being four years old yeah yeah right like yeah i mean i when we were talking earlier about, you know, my sort of trajectory, I was thinking about how early in the pandemic, my friend who lives in New York and I, we would, you know, get together on, on text message just to watch dark and ele and later elevation together. Mm -hmm. um, because that was a way for us to connect when we were all kind of isolated. Um, but I think, I, I think it's a complex case because I think that it is much more people 20, 30 years ago than now. Yeah. I, you know, I was talking about this with, with Brandon Thurston again, and we we're talking about like certain types of legacy media enterprise and like WWE is one of them where the sense like WWE has multiple generations of fans that exist. And mm -hmm. in regards to that, like, how do they, are they creating new fans and can they create new fans without new stars? And like, how does that compare to like these other things? Like let's, let's do, let's do star, like star Wars, for example, star Wars also has many generations mm -hmm. of fans, but star Wars continues to create new fans by creating all sorts of content that is related to previous incarnations. Um, Batman is an example. Batman has many generations of fans, right? But you can always just recast Batman and make a new Batman movie. And it doesn't have to be the same person. You can't recast The right. Rock. You can't recast Steve Austin. And so I feel right. like WWE has kind of been chasing that by kind of wheeling out these older wrestlers and hoping that they can kind of kickstart business a little bit, kind of in lieu of the fact that they haven't been able to kind of have that impact with, with their younger generation of wrestlers i guess and wwe can't really afford to carry mm -hmm. itself like a brand like like nick khan wants to say that we're like disney we're like marvel but those companies are going to have ip that has proven to resonate for generations people have been watching mickey mouse cartoons for 100 years um so like but but and people have been watching, you know, Spider-Man for, for since the sixties, you, if you're WWE, you can't, you have to come up, you're much more like 
like the music industry where you're going to have to create some new fans if you want to new stars that can bring in new fans if you want to continue decade to decade you can only rely on these old because it's a physical industry you can only rely on these older wrestlers for so long and i don't know like if they're i don't know if their philosophy is is is, is conducive to, to capitalizing on that well the first thing i thought of when you were talking about this was the holograms right the hologram shows with like two pack and with and whitney and ronnie james dio yeah, but do you we think those, those right? do you think those will really take off as like an act like do you think people will go see a Tupac concert, like a whole Tupac concert, and he's a hologram? Do you think that's something that'll actually happen? Or do you think um, it's this novelty? I know people went to the Dio shows. I think yeah, I'm pretty sure people went to the Dio shows. I think it depends on the artist, you know. I think it depends on that kind of I mean, obviously like doing a one off at Coachella or whatever or whatever. Right. That's like the Tupac thing, and right? Different economics. But, you know, I went to, what was it, 11, 12 years ago, I went to that Michael Jackson stage show that was the Cirque du Soleil, Michael Jackson, there's the Cirque du Soleil Beatles stuff. So I think it might be, you know, all in how it's presented and could, you know, with a cash infusion from whoever buys WWE, could they pioneer this kind of new type of live experience that might not be live on like like live in person on stage but still has excitement for the crowd yeah like we could see hologram andre the giant wrestling like hologram right uh paul white or something like that uh yeah yeah i think well with music i mean i'm just spitballing here but oh sorry go ahead right well i'm thinking like with music right like a musical performance like the hologram tupac or the hologram you say Ronnie James Dio? There's a hologram, Ronnie James Dio. Yeah. Do they make him taller in the hologram or is yeah. he still like five feet tall? <laughs> I think I think it's a true to life. Okay. Um, um but anyway. Who of so, his stature? Yeah. But um uh like if you're live live music, right? You kind of you can you you can kind of ex expect them to play a set list of familiar things. Right. As opposed right. to like creating a new like hologram Tupac is not releasing a new music and new albums. I guess you could you get someone else to write for him, but it would be weird if that was the case. Like hologram Tupac is going to sing these 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 rap songs that otherwise like would have gone to like Kendrick Lamar or someone else. Um, mm -hmm, as mm -hmm. opposed to like. Like, 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 are we going to do hologram rock promos? Is someone going to write new material and we can get like 2001 rock to come out and do a rock promo as a hologram? Um, God, I bet right. you this is something right. Stephanie McMahon has tried to explore before, but uh, it's that is interesting. I mean, Chat GPT like, could, you know, maybe do it, right? I don't know. I and mean, this is right. a horrible future that we're writing yeah. here. Why are we doing this? But, you know, it is, it is interesting to think about in terms of just how reliant a lot of businesses and not just wrestling but a lot of businesses have become on popping the nostalgia you know like reaction yeah um, i mean yeah we talk about, like food you know whether it's food or movies or music or anything yeah and it's so interesting for me like people in my generation at least i'm 28 mm. um like the like i always thought like you know my generation's relationship with nostalgia is is a little bit different because we grew up with 
the internet and we grew up with YouTube really. And so stuff kind of never went away in the sense right. of nostalgia. Yeah. Like if you grew up in like my parents and you grew up in the parents grew up in the sixties and seventies, they might've gone mm-hmm. 30 years since they would have been able to hear the theme song of their favorite television show from 1971. Um, Right. Until they were able to go on YouTube and they were to find it. And that's like a break, a blast of nostalgia that like, oh, I remember this. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. As opposed to my generation where just everything has been accessible for me since I was really an adolescent uh, at all times. And so what kind of relationship do I have with nostalgia that's going Uh, to be different than other people's? customizable too, right? Like you make like ours. What? Yeah. I mean, Sorry. and customizable too. Like you could make like CDRs, you know, of albums. Hello? Right. Like, 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 well, music is Hello? like a joke. Yeah. Can you hear me? Uh-oh. We might have lost yeah, Mara. I can hear you. Sorry. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Well, like music is like a joke now, right? Okay. Like compared to how easy it is to access stuff versus previous generations. Like the idea that just every, every song ever is easily listened to within five seconds. I could be listening to literally any song like ever recorded is ridiculous is completely ridiculous well, not it's completely any cheap. song yeah but you know what i mean like pretty but, much yeah i mean no totally i mean and this is something that i talk about in my in my ass a lot you know i have to explain kind of the market conditions of 90s when the prototypical music listener was somebody who bought one cd a month one cd a month could you imagine like just having that i mean I was definitely not, you know, I definitely overshot that by a lot, but um, I've never bought a CD in my know, life. The, the idea that there's that so much stuff is available. Really? Yeah. Like I don't, I didn't really listen to music. Have you until... bought a, have you ever bought vinyl? No. I don't, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I like, I, I never really listened to music until I was like, probably like 14, like seriously listen to music. And by that point, I had an iPod, and so I would buy songs uh-huh. individually off iTunes. And I've I have bought albums oh, gotcha, off okay. of iTunes, but I never like bought CDs and like put them in my car or anything okay. like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm sorry if that. that yeah, makes you I feel mean that's big. a really interesting because like I, st- no, no, I talked to you know I I teach undergraduates so yeah, I so probably not, that yeah. ship has that ship sailed like ten years ago, <laughs> but um. <laughs> You know, I still have like CDs and, and records and cassettes and seven inches and everything. Like I still have physical media, even though I listen to more of it via streaming services now. Yeah, um, I actually feel like that's kind of like coming. having the physical copy. And also, you know, I always worry that like certain things will go out of print. Yeah. yeah. I think actually that's kind of coming back. It's kind of like, um, hey, like phys- phys- owning physical media has come back as like a hipster trend in certain circles. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I think also, you know, part of the thing with nostalgia too, is that like the, the, I think about like how you browse digital services, whether it's a video service or a music service and how, like, what do you do? What do you do to sort of like find something? You just type it in the search bar, but if you're kind of looking for, you know, to, to just browse, like I would go to my stack of CDs and like, browse the spines that's not as possible even though obviously like spotify's discovery tools are pretty robust but they're still not as intuitive and they're not as kind of instantaneous where it's like 
your eye falls on something and you're like, oh, I could do that. But then you have to, you know, with, with digital services, and this is true for journalism too, you have to make that extra kind of mental step to be like, I'm going to click on this and it's going to be worth my time. And I think that that feeds into that whole like lean back ideal that I was talking about earlier, where it's like, like if people are going to click on something, like they want it to be worth their time. So they might go to a more known quantity as opposed to something that might waste their time. Yeah. And that's a good point. Like, especially when it comes to watching older content for sure. Um, and especially mm-hmm. in, I think like the world of like, like streaming services, right. Um, you have a choice. We've all been in this situation where we're, I want to watch something on streaming. I don't really want to know what I watch. And now we are furiously, you know, pressing the right arrow in whether you're on Netflix or whatever. And you're like, suddenly have like this really Mm -hmm. high standard for like what I'm going to watch, which would never exist if you were just watching basic cable years ago. You wouldn't be nearly as picky, but because you're like, all right, I got to make the correct choice. And of course you can always just turn it off after 10 minutes if it's wrong. But it is interesting, like like what influences us to watch that? And like, how does that pertain to like what we see now, like with wrestling? Like, I always think like part of the reason WWE was so obsessed with the idea of like, we got to bring back, the rock or the undertaker for wrestlemania because we got to get something that people who are you know maybe only like for for wrestlemania is a perfect example because that is a event that is largely supported by people who are only watching wrestlemania and maybe no other ww event that year mm-hmm. so what do we have on that service on on our service and on that show that that person's going to recognize because actually all these characters and storylines that we've built for the last year, those don't matter to this person who's only watching once a year. What matters to them is familiarity. So that's going to be the undertaker or it's going to be triple H or it's going to be Steve Austin coming out for an interview segment with Kevin Owens. It's going to be one of those things that supports like, like the cat, not even the casual fan, but just like the, the once a year viewer and they go over the top catering towards that person in a lot of ways because that person has the loose loosest affiliation with their product and that's the person that they're trying to, to nab and i think that's something that wwe right. has strategically really aimed at and it's something that's copied in a lot of media yeah i would agree i mean i, I think you see it you know even with primetime network tv now with like the game shows that are everywhere you know and it's the price is right at night, you know, or that new game show that is a basically a ripoff of Wordle hosted by RuPaul. My parents are very um, excited about that, by the way. <laughs> You're right. Um, it's literally it's, just Wordle and it, it's, it's Wordle. literally it's, the game. It, yeah. And um, it's actually a great idea, think, if I'm being honest. I mean, I wonder how the Times feels about that. But yeah, like, I, you know, it is it is kind of ingenious. And obviously, like, you know, there was Scrabble, the game show when I was a kid, which I was super into, or or even Wheel of Fortune, which are obviously variations yeah. on that theme. Game, yeah. game shows are very, uh, like, every 10 or 15 years, there's a game show boom. Yeah, yeah. Like, there was the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire related boom, where, like, that was just suddenly the biggest show on television, this very simple television show where someone asked trivia questions to someone else. Oh, I know that show. I was on it. Not as you... a contestant, but... um. Yeah, in the internet age, the phone a friend became kind of compromised, you know, because people could just like, yeah, like, oh, hold on, let me think about this type, type, type. So <laughs> they changed that to a plus one. 
And a friend of mine asked me to be their plus one for a who wants to be a millionaire taping. And I did it and I helped them win $30,000. Did you? So, what was the question you had to help, help out on? It was a, um, it was about the street running alongside Grand Central Station, who it was named after Vanderbilt is the answer. Oh, were you in? Yeah, I wouldn't have known that, but you're a New Yorker by nature. Uh, so. Yes, a former New Yorker. Yes. So, yeah, so that was, I was that, like, oh, my friends, will, person. Yeah. my friends will be terrible. My friends won't will disown me you know and then yeah so yeah. they won and it was great and you know it was in vegas um and it was hosted by the guy who ho- used to host the bachelor mm-hmm. chris harrison so this is kind of post Harry. this is kind of post who wants to be a millionaire boom yeah this was this was like five years ago oh yeah so it's like on the game show network or whatever yeah that's it you know who wants to be a millionaire um, yeah. is really like i was like young when it came out obviously but like mm-hmm. the entire it's such a it's almost like a brilliant show to study because it's its value is entirely based on its production value and like amazing, mm-hmm. like all time great music, the music, the lights, Regis Philbin's like the perfect host yeah. for it. And it's such yeah. a simple concept, which is just like, we're going to ask you what's like 15 trivia questions. And if you get them all right, you win a million dollars. And it was so big that like they were having it, like there was like, there was like, you know, Monday night and then there was like Wednesday night and there was, it was, it was such a big deal at the time. Um, but anyway, that's off topic. Uh, well, I was going to point out though, that I feel like, you know, you were talking about streaming earlier and how mm-hmm. like the, the sort of paralysis of choice and everything, but that's why I think the fast networks are so interesting. The fast services, the free ad supported TV. Yeah. So you're talking because like 2B are, or Pluto. Yeah. Because yeah. those are like, you can just put up like you know there was a recent period where like i would just put on the hell's kitchen channel and have that on in the background you know all day because it was something that you know the, you get to know the rhythms of the show and you get to you get used to it kind of like how i used to watch law and order a lot mm-hmm. um and so i think it's interesting how those networks which have you know these channels that are just devoted to different reruns right cheaters yeah a very familiar with- shows yeah, yeah, of of super familiar shows where you can just be like, well, I have like, you know, I have to fold laundry for the next half hour, so I might as well just put this on in the background. Well, on a personal note, like I get caught, I, I've talked about this uh, with my friends before, and mm-hmm. I we live in this world of like prestige television, right? Right. And I'm very, I'm very into like, if someone says something is really good, I'm really into like, I, I'm into like movies that get like praised and stuff like that. And I try to watch, you know, the Academy Award nominated films and things like that. Um, and television shows, I don't do as good of a job as watching mainly because I watch a lot of wrestling and it interferes with my mm-hmm. ability to watch television. Totally. But but we live in this world where like every week some show comes out and someone's like, oh my God, you got to watch this show. It's so great. Like you mentioned Poker Face earlier as kind of like a, a show that's picked up like popularity in recent right. weeks. Um, and so like, I, and I end up kind of being under this pressure where it's like, not only are you just watching this television show, which for most people is supposed to be like this relaxing thing, but it's like, you got to pay attention and you got to be mm-hmm. able to appreciate this amazing work of art that's in front of you. The same way I would be like focused if I was going to go into a theater and watch a movie or watch a, like a stage performance or something like that. And if I get distracted or I'm doing something else or I got it's on in the background and I end up not really getting it, I'll feel like I cheated myself out of this incredible artistic experience because I wasn't paying full attention to this thing that people said is great. And that impacts like that's almost like stressful for me. Like this is what so, so I need something dumb to counterbalance that. So I need reruns of familiar sitcoms. Mm-hmm. 
if I'm literally just putting something on the background. So you mentioned like to- tossing on something on like, you know, Pluto, like I'm going to put on this thing that's like nonstop Hell's Kitchen episodes because I don't have to really watch them, but it's nice to have it on the background. And this is actually a way to relax and decompress as opposed yep. to like, it is now like, I'm sure for you, cause you listen to music for a living. Like it feel the thing that's supposed to be relaxing feels like work almost. Oh yeah. I mean, there was a show that I went to a couple of months ago and I like, and the band, and it was a band that I liked, but they, they started playing their new album in full. And I had reviewed that album and I just got so stressed out. Cause I was like, I feel like I'm at work. I have to go take a walk. And like, <laughs> I, I walked around the concourse for like th- half an hour <laughs> just cause like, I was like, I'm, I'm, I was having fun, but then like, it just, you know, when, when I review a record, I listen to it a lot, obviously. So yeah. I was like flashing back. Not that I, I enjoyed the record. It wasn't that I didn't enjoy it. It was just that, you know, it was a, I think it was a Wednesday. So I had taught earlier that evening. So I was like, you know, definitely into decompression mode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that can happen with, again, to bring it back to wrestling, that can happen with wrestling where people are more likely to, mm-hmm. to instead of like, oh, I'm going to like, like AEW can be almost daunting if you've never watched it before, because it's a lot of these characters that you're not going to know. Yeah. And they're going to be storylines that you're not going to know. Um, and it's going to be very difficult, even though like they can explain who they are. And I, I always think it's kind of overstated, like how, like, there's like this straw man, idiot, casual fan who's just right. going to be confused by everything and expects to know everything that's going on as soon as they turn it on. But it can be daunting and, and it can, you know, people's familiarity can struggle with it the same way it does with other forms of our pop culture. Um, uh, lastly, I want to touch on one last thing. We I, we talked about this off air at the very beginning, but mm-hmm. Just in general, when we talk about stars, we talk about star yeah. power. We talk about that a lot in wrestling. And just the way our society works, where everything is kind of spread out um, and our monoculture is dead in that we have, it seems like we have more celebrities than ever, but the celebrities themselves are smaller than they used to be. And how that relates to pro wrestling in the sense that we have our standards of like Hulk Hogan being popular and The Rock and Steve Austin and these guys drew like this and how that's probably really unattainable now for any individual wrestler. I was talking about this mm-hmm. with Brandon Thurston um, and we're, he was talking about, we're talking about like the impact that CM Punk made on AEW viewership yeah. and ratings and like, oh, MJF isn't making that same kind of impact. And it's like, well, CM Punk was a star in WWE when they had like three and a half million viewers per week mm-hmm. and mjf doesn't it doesn't have that platform and no one in wwe even has that platform now because right. the viewership is down because part of it is because the product isn't as good but part of a lot of it is because the cable cutters and other options are available than watching pro wrestling on monday nights and that's true across our entire pop culture and it does seem like the, the that that the the star power that we have in society is getting smaller and smaller as it becomes more diversified as it becomes all these different platforms emerge where someone can be a star it's not just you can only you, you're not just in hollywood anymore right like right. in the old days it's like you had to be in hollywood you had to, you're either on tv or you're in movies and that's how you were a star you're in music and now it's like you can be a youtube celebrity you can be a social media influencer you can be doing all these different things and become a star and become famous um and it's harder and it's harder for those individuals to stand out and like you said in music there's not that many diamond artists anymore why is that i mean there wasn't from 
you know, di the diamond award, which was established in the late nineties, I always feel like it's the Icarus flying too close to the sun moment for music mm -hmm. because it was like, it's the late nineties. We're, we're never going to, you know, have a problem with selling records. And then Napster launched like a couple years later. And it was like, there were no diamond albums between, um, Usher's Confessions, which came out in the early 2000s, and Adele's 21, mm -hmm. which is, you know, that's a long time. Yeah, it's like 10, and it took a while for it. Yeah, yeah. And it took it, it took a while for Adele to reach that milestone too. Um, you know, I always think of when when I think about this, I think of the I think of the t-shirts that I see at shows. And I think about how like there was that one, there was a there was an episode of I think Raw or SmackDown, it was a WWE show that John Cena was on. And I remember turning it on. I remember seeing like a sea of green, you know, because all these people had bought the John Cena shirts and were wearing them. And at AEW shows, you kind of, what I like, what I appreciate about that is that you see a bigger variety of shirts. You can see somebody in a best friend shirt. You can see people, you know, in their bullet club shirts still, or, you know, Kenny Omega or the, or hangman or whatever. And I think that, um, I think that one thing that AEW that has done that's really smart, I mean, I think they've done a lot of smart things, but they have these, you know, this wide range of people who can appeal to different fans in different ways. And they, it, they might not be the hugest wattage star, but again, it's like that sort of, you know, wide pool versus the really deep one, right? Where it's like, they might not be world beating, anything but they have enough fans that they'll get cheered at events or they'll get you know you'll see like multiple people wearing their shirts at shows um and I, I think that that is probably the smarter play at this point just even though obviously like CM Punk was a huge needle mover um I will say the ice cream bar that he got was very good um, but uh you know but I think that he was also somebody who, like you said, was a product of a different market environment and a, and a much more potent market environment and, and or a much more, I should say, wide and possibly more shallow market environment. Whereas with AEW, it's like the individual, like there, there are these like kind of like individual connections. And yeah. obviously you have like the big stars like John Moxley, Brian Danielson, but again like those are you know other people who like were forged in a media environment that was so different it's I mean you really you know you really just don't think about how like it's been it's only been 10 years but over the 10 years that I've been in Boston so much has changed and so you know so much has changed just about the way that celebrity works and who you know who gets like who could be like a person who gets a million likes on TikTok or, you know, has really lucrative YouTube channels. Um, it's, it's a landscape that I think a lot of people are still trying to wrap their heads around, including the people who are making money from it, because it is so constantly changing and, and different. But yeah. I do think that the, the strategy of having all of these different people who can resonate more personally with audience members is a smart one even if it doesn't make a mega star. I don't think that, I, I don't think that those are sustainable because if you depend too much on one person, then if that person, something happens to them and obviously in wrestling, 
that's something that's very possible because if that person business. decides to have a crazy post-show interview and start a fight with other executives in your company. That that is one example. Yes, I was also thinking of breaking, you know, broken bones. But yeah, the melt the post show meltdown also fits. If that but person yeah, if you, tears you know, their biceps and then has a post show meltdown. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Like you know, then what do you do? So I think that you know this sort of even though it's it's different, it's different than what people are used to, and I think that that's a lot of the pushback that that you see in the especially in the sort of media circles, which your episode about AEW, I'm not to, you know, grovel, but it was so good. And I sent it to so many people because Thank I you. thought you really nailed a lot of media phenomena, phenomena on the head. And I think that, you know, there is an inherent conservatism, like we're, we've, we've been talking about nostalgia and everything, right? And there is an inherent conservatism in nostalgia too, because it is looking to the past for ideas and for comfort and maybe be not forging into the future, which is scary and, you know, not certain. So I think that, you know, that's another reason for, that's another talk, another talking point for these people who want to kind of get in on the anti-AEW grift. Well, yeah. And I, I think, you know, like what you say, like is really interesting because it's so atypical of the history of pro wrestling, which is like, you get a big, big star and you build everything around them and that big star moves business and we all go up with them. And what you're saying is like that wide pool as opposed to that deep pool and kind of being able to appeal to a lot of different people. And maybe you don't have that one star who can like, you know, be in a big angle and drive business way up, but it's more sustainable. And it's kind mm-hmm. of, it's, it's, uns- and it makes a lot of sense because it's kind of unsustainable to the idea that we're going to create somebody that's as big of a star as Steve Austin was. It's like, well, we've been waiting for 25 years for that person. 25 years, yeah. To, to come out. So maybe that person's just not coming because, and maybe the, the re- reason that person isn't coming isn't because there hasn't been a talented person or there hasn't been a company capable of doing that. Maybe it's because our culture cannot create someone that big. I was talking about this with someone. Did you ever watch The Last Dance at all, the Michael Jordan series documentaries? I heard about it and I've seen the screenshots, but right. I did not. But right. So that was like a big deal during the pandemic. And it was, yeah. we we're talking about like, yeah. Michael Jordan is like more famous than any athlete we have today, at least in America. But even on a global scale, like Michael, he's Michael Jordan. Like, even though we have many, many famous athletes, like people like LeBron James, like Michael Jordan himself is still like probably our most famous athlete in america maybe tiger woods is maybe somewhere in the conversation but like it's there's there's no one really like comparable to michael jordan um and i part of that is just like my hypothetical thought on that is that like jordan peaked and you mentioned this like in the 90s like the creation of the diamond album right the 90s was i think a point Mm -hmm. in our our culture where we had become evolved enough from like a marketing perspective where and, and kind of like a where a celebrity could hit unprecedented heights yeah but it was kind of a climax before the downfall caused by the internet in the death of our monoculture hit i think a a comparable person to michael jordan is michael jackson right like there's it's hard to think of another musician who's ever going to become as famous as michael jackson we have many musicians that are famous today but michael jackson is a different level of star than than anyone else and part of that is because he peaked during this time period where he could be marketed in so many different ways and could even have be like, you know, the early days of online stuff, but before we really fissured into all of these different 
outlets uh, as a culture. And I think like the same thing goes for wrestling. Like Steve Austin hits this peak and then The Rock hits this peak of fame and, and star power in pro wrestling. Uh, but our interests get, you know, diluted and diverged through, you know, having access to way more things. And it's mm-hmm. now really unrealistic to think somebody is going to become as popular as those people, the same way it's unrealistic to think that somebody can become as popular of a musician as Michael Jackson was. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, Michael Jackson was obviously like a perfect storm of a lot of factors, you know, like he had been really well known as a child. And Mm -hmm. then he put out, you know, these records in the, in the late, like off the wall in Thriller and his rise also, you know, he was a a pioneer in music video as music video was sort of taking hold, which I think was really crucial to him breaking as wide as he did. But at the same time, people knew who he was because he was the leader of the Jackson five and the Jackson five had a Saturday morning. They were Saturday morning cartoon famous, which is like, you know, its own kind of level of fame. And, um, and, you know, he rode that success, you know, to these really elaborate videos you know, George Went and Macaulay Culkin were in the video for black and white, like what black or white, like what? And um, yeah, I think I, I think that, you know, it's interesting to think of the 90s as sort of this like time for making these megastars, because obviously like that's when Friends debuted, that's when Seinfeld debuted. And I was thinking while you were talking about how, you know, that was also the time when Bruce Springsteen, another person whose fame is, you know, like really potent um had a song called 57 channels and nothing on and it was like at the time having 57 cable channels what that was you know like seen as this kind of ridiculously high number mm-hmm. and now it's like i don't i i think i subscribe to more than 57 youtube channels you know yeah well yeah and that's that's one of those things like well like in bruce i was i was actually gonna bring up bruce springsteen because like we're talking about like star power right like who are mm-hmm. who are the biggest concert attractions right taylor now swift. like taylor swift yes and taylor swift's a contemporary artist for taylor sure taylor swift beyonce i mean those you know they're doing stadiums um mm-hmm. guns and roses metallica metallica's i'm thinking of all the people who are playing gillette um who have been announced for gillette this summer well and that's why i brought up when I was thinking, my mom told me yesterday that Bruce Springsteen tickets are $500, starting yeah. at $500 at Gillette Stadium, which is where the Patriots play uh, in Foxborough, oh, for people who don't know. the, the Yeah. Venue. Is but, he playing, is he playing, oh yeah, he is playing Gillette too, because he's playing TD Garden in a couple of weeks, and tickets for that are just outrageously yeah. expensive no, he well, to the point they, where like, oh sorry, go on. They announced, I think he, it was recently announced Gillette Stadium show, I right. think, like this, like okay. maybe, maybe July? He's coming, but anyway, the point is, that's is right. that, yeah, you're right. Okay, and that's a Sorry, similar I'm... thing, but that's a similar might... thing in the sense that, like, these nostalgia acts, like you know, when the Rolling Stones come rolling out, uh, still, is that like they also have been able to cultivate generations of fans, right? Mm-hmm. I saw Bruce Springsteen at Gillette Stadium, uh, probably like five years ago. Nice. I'm, nice I'm, I, I'm not in Bruce Springsteen's like, I wasn't around when Bruce Springsteen was like big hit in the scene. Um, but I like Bruce Springsteen, uh, and, and that's for some of these like larger, like these, these older acts are able to become so successful, even if they're kind of out of the contemporary picture because they've successfully built generation upon f- generations of fans. Um, and yeah. I, I, I do wonder like, 
well, those it does feel like we have kind of like a like maybe like I don't want to say like, like kind of like a golden age of 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 music artists like kind of like um I guess like the original first major rock acts are mm-hmm. mostly done at this point, but we still have these big acts from like the late sixties early seventies where these performers are still are in their seventies now still able to perform for the most part, but those people are going to hit an expiration date, and are those people going to be replaced with? other golden age or like like a new new artists i guess that can draw at the same level um i think yeah, it's an I mean, intriguing question and again similar to it, wrestling you see it in the in the way that classic rock has kind of expanded its purview because like classic rock is still you know radio is obviously and it's in a very weird place right now because it is being displaced in a lot of cars by the aux cord or spotify being even built into cars and stuff and um classic rock is still a format that is enduring and it's still you know doing really well and now in boston we have this other rock station that's kind of like class the the classic rock for people my age where it's like third eye blind and and, you know stuff from the 90s people get scared because they hear oh no it's on the classic rock station (laughs) yeah like it's a sign that you're old if the music that you liked as as like a teenager is now on the classic station again been teaching undergraduates since 2010 so that ship has sailed (laughs) (laughs) but um but you know like i think that the way that classic rock and its playlists have sort of like crept into the nineties where they'll play like Nirvana, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, uh, Interstate Love Song by Stone Temple Pilots, which is such a great song. And I think that you're, that's what you're going to see. Obviously like, you know, with three of those examples, the lead singers have passed away. Um, But that I think is, you know, it's interesting to see like how, this classic rock ideal has still persisted among younger listeners and and among younger generations. And part of that is because, you know, it's stuff that families listen to. It's stuff that fathers and daughters or fathers and sons or mothers and sons will listen to and sort of find common ground on. Like a lot of my students um, really like John Mayer. And it's partially because they think he's a really good guitar player, but it's also because he plays with Dead and Co. And that's another sort of like parental bridge. Oh, for sure. Um, so I think that you're gonna see this this creep of classic of the of the idea of like classic rock. And they might not be able to fill a stadium. Like last summer, I covered what was called the stadium tour which was Motley Crue, Poison, Def Leppard, and Joan Jett. And that was, you know, a package deal that wasn't, you know, one, like like Motley Crue and Def Leppard would like flip headliners every night. Mm -hmm. But those I think are going to be the sort of like future of a lot of these. Once the, once the super, super, superstars. Well, kind of like the wide, like you said, like kind of the wide pool instead of the deep pool, instead of having one, Instead, instead of having like just Bruce Springsteen, we now have these four like semi-big acts kind of banding together. Exactly. I think- And um, I mean, Molly Crew, you know, Molly Crew, like The Dirt was an interesting phenomenon when it was when it came out on Netflix a couple of years ago and sort mm-hmm. of sparked interest. I, I do wonder what it would have been like if it had come out in this environment with like the post, like running up that hill going to number three, the Kate Bush song because of Stranger Things. Yeah. But um, I think that, you know, those sorts of like like I said, yeah, the wide the wide pool as opposed to like the deep the deep one. Yeah, that's and, what you're gonna need for these larger scale yeah. shows. And I think you've seen that's like with with wrestling with WWE kind of like WWE has kind of 
they've, they've put a lot of emphasis on talking about the ruthless aggression era, like the era from 2002 to 2006 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of like replaced like a lot of their like attitude era style, um, like, you know, uh, nostalgia pieces and things like that. And mm-hmm. that era wasn't as popular for WWE as the attitude era, but it behooves them to push that era as like historically significant because then when they bring back someone like Edge, they're associating them with like this very successful era, the way that they associated wrestlers with the Attitude Era, with. right? And they're kind of like, in some ways, like in not like you mentioned, like with TV shows and stuff like that, be getting rebooted, like stuff that wasn't particularly like notable or successful in that time. With this, the aid of nostalgia, it kicks in, and their uh, um, people have nostalgia, and it can it maybe can draw, it can maybe increase interest in a way that didn't exist at its peak. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Or that did exist at its peak, but because the the calibration of what a peak is is so different now that those peaks seem a lot more impressive. Yeah. I remember like uh, someone, this was right after like Bohemian Rhapsody, the, the, the Queen movie came out. Mm-hmm. And like someone saying that like the idea that like today people can like say like queen is on like the same level as like the beatles and the rolling stones seems would be very would be like crazy to someone in like 1978 like when queen was at its peak they weren't seen as this like all-time incredibly amazing band that everyone loved but nostalgia and certain things aging specifically well has enabled them to become even bigger than they ever were when they were in their like prime as musicians and obviously when freddie mercury was alive and I found that right. very fascinating. See, I think, I mean, I think that they were pretty big. I think it's also like, I think us being American, I don't know if that person who made that observation was American or British, but I think that, you know, that's another thing to take into consideration is like, they were huge in the UK. I mean, there was that show, you know, their Live Aid set was, it in 1985 was, you know, really seismic and at, at Wembley Stadium. And then, um, you know, the the tribute show that they did after Freddie Mercury's death was also, Right, but that's, that's almost huge, that's kind of past, thing. but that's past their peak. Even that live aid show is probably past their peak gotcha. when it came to okay. like them pumping, like they like yeah. when they're in their prime when they're releasing an album every year or two. That's true. That's like, true. Like when yeah, you would yeah. consider that, because by the time eighty five rolls around, it's almost like a nostalgia act. It's like, oh, remember Queen, that band that was around. I'm, I don't want right. to dismiss it and say like they weren't popular at all, but they've kind of been elevated to like this Mount Rushmore of rock and roll status mm-hmm. um because of, of of how they've aged and how nostalgia plays in and you see that with wrestling you see that with certain wrestlers are definitely going to be, end up being remembered uh in certain ways that uh because of that because of time um, absolutely i'm gonna absolutely. wrap it up because you said you had a uh you got tight out here but i had to ask you oh, one last very important yeah. question okay um and this is re- the real reason why i wanted to have you on the show which is Uh-oh. um <laughs> what is it like to uh have a last name that's one letter similar uh different from a much more common easily spelled last name and what is it like for you as a person oh it sucks but you know i mean both my names are you know prone to um misunderstanding mm-hmm. my dad's name is don too so in the 80s there were i would get a lot of miami vice jokes yes um but yeah i mean my name gets misspelled all the time um but you know the other thing too is that my first name also, people will think that it starts with L or N. So it's just a complete minefield. I should really just go by my middle name because Kathleen is, you know, easy, but. Is it? There's like a lot of different spellings of, of Kath- uh, Kathleen. 
I don't know. Kathleen, you know, K or C, I mean. Yes. Well, one, I, yeah. I'm very similar in the sense that people just really want my last name to be Collins. Calling. Oh, they want it to be C-A? No, Collins without a G. Oh, Collins. Yes. Yeah, because that's an oh, infinitely yeah. more popular last name than the, totally. what I have. And How first, does it feel for you? It's bad. Yeah, it's annoying. It sucks. The, <laughs> the, the real annoying thing is the insistence of spelling my name J-E-S-S-I-E, which oh. is is what? not... It's not even close to the most common way to spell my last name, my first name. Yeah. Like, but th- there's a lot of people that just automatically just assume that's how you spell my name. Uh, and something I do, I do, if you, if you ever want to troll me, that'd be a, a good way to start. I would never do that. Yeah. Because um, I know, I know what it's like to have that happen. <laughs> that's right. That's what I say. Cause like whenever you're over the phone, like I, I always have to like, if I'm spelling my last name, I always have to like really emphasize the G in it. Like, yeah. 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 So it's a C-O-L-L-I-N-G-G-S. Yeah. Like, and like, I'm like, I'm with my T. Yeah. yeah and, you hear, and you hear the person on the phone go, oh, oh G, G-S. Like hit backspace right. and press it because they're, they're so ready to just write the whole thing. And uh, all right. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you want to plug? Um. Well, I guess I'm on Twitter, although I don't post as much as I used to. I'm at Mora. Um, I have a thing where I try to get Mora as my username for as many online services as possible. And um, it usually works. There are some things that I'm a late adapter to, but for the most part, I have my first name. I have my, you know, I have to update my website with more portfolio related stuff, but, um, you know, just read music journalism because a lot of it's good. And I've been doing a lot, you know, I've been really busy this week um, doing stuff for, Rolling Stone and the Boston Globe. And uh, I'm trying to think what else. I don't know. Oh, I have a radio show where I talk about wrestling a little bit on it. Um, it's on a station called Uncertain.fm, which is run by TJ Connolly, who's actually the DJ for the Patriots. Oh, really? And the Bruins. Yeah. So he plays the music and in the arenas? Yeah, actually, the- um, he used to do that for the Red Sox. And one season I was his backup. Oh, so that really? was a fun Boston experience. Yeah. The Patriots have excellent in-stadium music. TJ is amazing. He I've pro- always like that. he programmed the back end of the station. He started it during the pandemic and it's turned into a really awesome thing. So that's yeah, uncertain.fm. I'm on Tuesdays at 10. And then there's a replay on Wednesdays at one. Can we call um, in and, and and yell an exaggerated Boston well, accent? Well, it's, which it's is what, taped. It's uh, taped in advance, but you can come on the Slack and say and say things and use a Boston accent. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, Tamara. And thanks so much Thank for everyone you. who's been this listening really to this. Fun. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks so much to everyone who's been listening to the show. Again, you can find us all over the place now that we're on the VOW network. You can just look up Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast on your favorite podcast app of choice. And I'll talk to everyone again in the future. Thanks for listening. Hey, everybody. My name is Jesse Collings, and I want to tell you all about my show, The Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast, here on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. On The Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast, we do a thorough analysis on the biggest issues and trends within the pro wrestling industry. We talk a lot about pro wrestling media, we talk a lot about fan culture and wrestling's place within general pop culture, and we talk about the broader influences that are shaping the way we discuss and analyze the pro wrestling industry. 
We've had some of the brightest minds in the pro wrestling intelligentsia on the show, including WrestleNomics host Brandon Thurston, both Rich Critch and Joe Lanza from the Flagship Wrestling Podcast, Trevor Dame from the Through the Years Podcast, and a whole lot more. This isn't a show for hot takes. It's not a show recapping the latest episode of television. This is a show focusing on the biggest topics in pro wrestling and doing a deep dive on the real stories behind the surface level analysis you might find elsewhere. The Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd really appreciate it if you gave us a try. Thanks.